It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week, we're serving you some Spitzen candidate realness. We've got Franz Timmerman from The Socialists, who is the man with momentum. He's catching up to Manfred Weber in this race to be commission president, and perhaps the most high-profile candidate of all, Margrethe Vestager, who is the Liberals and Democrats in Europe Team Europe member. They put forward seven people. It's a bit bizarre. I'm not sure she even wants to be commission president. But anyway, I interviewed the two of them as part of a television series collaboration with Arte. And we're showing you the highlights of those two interviews this week. In the podcast panel, we'll discuss whether Jean-Claude Juncker should have received a European of the Year award. And we go behind the scenes of Brexit in a new documentary. First up, Franz Timmermans. Now, you've had a very important role as first vice president of the European Commission over the last five years. What would you do differently to the Juncker Commission if you were in charge? I think, first of all, we need to be more out there. We need to be in the member states and not just in government buildings, but where people work, where people live, what their problems are, see them ourselves. I also believe we need to take into account that people are fed up with austerity politics and that we need to create more social justice. Mm -hmm. If we want people to understand that we need to create a sustainable ecology, sustainable economy, we have to start by sustainable social policies. And I think that would be the top priority of the next commission. And that would include issues like taxation, because there seems to be a big problem with that around the world. Exactly. I mean, member states are not capable anymore individually to tax big companies. These big companies have become so big, they can arm-twist member states into allowing them to make billions of profits and pay no taxes. Unacceptable. Only Europe can fix this for European citizens. And I, I get this everywhere I go, European citizens saying, look, you need to fix this. It's not fair that these companies don't pay taxes. We all pay taxes, why don't they? So this is something Europe really needs mm-hmm. to fix urgently. And how do you think you can convince the national governments who are pretty reluctant to have the EU get involved? Well, I think, you know, if I look also at my own country, there was always this myth that tax competition is good. 
But now that these companies have grown so big, I think there's also an understanding in those countries who believe in tax uh, competition that there should be at least a minimum protection of the taxpayers. And I believe to have, for instance, a Europe-wide agreement that you will not go below 18% in corporate tax mm -hmm. would be a good start. Then every member state can still decide to go beyond that, but nobody can just use tax dumping as a method to attract companies. Mm -hmm. There's not only tax injustice, but social injustice mm -hmm. in, in Europe. Yes. Let's talk about the social dimension, mm -hmm. uh, which is a bit lacking in Europe. And especially young people in the South are, uh, who are unemployed, uh, they have lost faith in Europe. Yes. What would you say to a young Italian woman who is looking for a job and uh, who cannot find one, even with a diploma? How can you help her? Well, I think, first of all, we need to make sure that we create steady jobs. We create jobs where a minimum salary is paid. So I want every single member state to have a minimum salary, which I would say would be sort of about 60% of the median salaries in Europe. I don't care how they do it. They can do it through law. They can do it through an agreement with social partners. That's not the point. The point is that it should be everywhere. Why? Because if there's no minimum salary, you can let young people work for three or four euros an hour. And that is completely unacceptable. But what about the ordinary workers? Don't you think that they are convinced more by um, Eurosceptics now? Because the number of Eurosceptics, that's for sure, they will rise. Yep, I have no problems with Eurosceptics. To be skeptical is a healthy attitude in any uh, position. I have problems with the Europhobes, those parties who want to destroy the European Union and say, oh, we'll save Europe by destroying the European Union. I don't think that's going to help anybody. But I do understand that some people who are disillusioned in what the European Union has done so far feel attracted by nationalist uh, rhetoric. So I, the only way I can convince them to come back is by showing that Europe is capable of creating a more solid uh, social policies, of creating more opportunity, mm -hmm. of creating better social protection. So we shouldn't be talking about who's competent in this or that. We should be talking about member states together with us at the European level, taking the responsibility for more social Europe. And let's turn to something like your efforts to deliver better regulation. Mm -hmm. Very long-standing efforts, but given the rise of the Eurosceptics, there's still clearly so many millions of people who think that the EU is somehow a bureaucratic or undemocratic monster. What else can you do beyond what you've done in the last five years well, to change that view? Yeah, well, what we've seen, we've, we've done quite a lot as a commission. This is not something that will attract a lot of public attention, but we have changed the nature in which we create legislation. We have mm -hmm. created much bigger buy-in of people who are actually yeah. the customers of our legislation. And you think it'll pay off next uh, time, even I, if it I, hasn't I think now? I, I mean, these things take a long time to sink in. I understand that. But take, for instance, the nature regulation, where people were saying at the outset of this commission, it's too much, too detailed, it's not helping us. And when we had a public consultation, you know, hundreds of thousands of Europeans took part. And they all said, safeguard this regulation. We want our nature to be better protected. We want biodiversity to be protected. So it gave us a huge boost that we were on, on the right track. In other areas, we've been more modest in the, re in the regulation. But take another example. One of the most popular pieces of legislation over the last years is the plastics legislation. So five years ago, if I would have said, we're going to ban plastic straws, people would say, are you, are you out of your mind, Europe banning plastic straws? Is that being big on big things? And now this has turned into one of the most popular pieces of legislation because the European public is ready to do something to keep plastic out of the oceans. Let's talk about migration. Mm -hmm. You stand for an open Europe. But there are people saying 
we have too many migrants and there are too many refugees. So mm. are you taking this very seriously? Yes, we can only have an open Europe if we have also the control over who comes in and who doesn't. An open Europe, it doesn't mean open to everyone, everybody's welcome. An open Europe means that we keep our internal market open, that we don't have internal borders, that we protect better our external borders, and that the states are in control of who comes in and who goes out. Yeah, but relocation and, was a big problem. Yes, because because there was a lack of solidarity in the European Union. Do you think it will change? I think it's slowly changing. I think, you know, the thing is, the situation was out of control in 2015 and 2016. And if we look at the reality on the ground, the situation is now much better under control. The numbers are down 85%. But the feeling in the politics is still that we're not in control. The ripple effects a couple of years afterwards are still there. And that brings people like Salvini and others to power. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very much aware of that. So we have to continue to show that we can control this. This begins with stronger border controls, but it ends with European asylum policy, that we have the same procedures so that you don't go asylum shopping in the European Union, and that we have the same humanitarian approach that real refugees get real protection mm -hmm. in Europe and that people who don't deserve to uh, be in Europe get sent back to the countries of origin. This is what we need to do. Will it work uh, the new Operation Sophia? So that's the EU's naval rescue mission mm -hmm. in the Mediterranean. But now there are no ships to rescue people. It's going to operate via drones and other yes. systems. Yes. Um, let's wait and see. Uh, let's wait how this uh, develops. Let's see how member states take their responsibility. The Commission stands ready. Mm -hmm. to assist member states in that. But while we think, wait, people are dying or drowning. Yeah, and that's, and that's completely uh, unacceptable. But the only way, you know, what you see is a process of dehumanizing. People saying, OK, I'm, I feel so threatened by this issue of migration. I, I close my eyes for the uh, plight of the people in the Mediterranean. We need to stop that. If we don't stay in touch with our fundamental values as Europeans, we don't only dehumanize the other, we dehumanize ourselves. But how can you so, convince Hungary or Poland? Um, That's a big problem. I'm not sure I can, but I can convince the vast majority of European nations that we have a collective responsibility. And then the vast majority can convince Hungary and Poland that they have a responsibility. Poland is an interesting case where the government is so adamant in saying no, 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 and mayors are saying to us, send us the refugees, we will take care of that. So there is a fundamental feeling of shared human interest in that, and I think this is something we can build on. The bigger threat for Europe, however, is identity politics. To portray somebody who's not like you because they have a different skin color, because they have a different religion, because they have a different language, because they have a different sexual identity, to portray them as the enemy. This is the biggest danger for Europe. Well, speaking of that, we should probably turn to rule of law and the issues in Hungary and Poland right now. You've been dealing with them directly for the last five years, yes. but the situation has been getting worse. So is it time to turn to other measures like financial penalties against countries like Hungary and Poland? Well, as you know, the Commission has proposed in our multi-annual financial framework to also link the rule of law to the structural funds. I think this is mm -hmm. necessary and this uh, gathers support from a big majority of member states. But I also think that member states should be aware that if we enter into territory like Article 7, where we could impose sanctions. We also put the responsibility into the hands of the council, which is the member states. Mm -hmm. And I think it's high time more member states would be aware of the fact that they need 
to address these issues also bilaterally. They need to say to member states who don't behave, you should behave because otherwise there will be consequences. So we're at that stage now and I, I think we will be able to influence it more and more, but it needs more firmness also from the member states. Mm -hmm. Now, inside your own family, the socialists, there's more and more criticism about governments like Romania. Yes. People complain about corruption there. They complain about strong-arm tactics. Mm -hmm. Would you be willing to follow a similar approach as you have with Hungary and with Poland when you go as Commission President next Well, time? frankly, I already have. Uh, I've been more critical than anybody else about the Romanian government's uh, approach. As a political family, uh, my family has decided to freeze the relationship with the Romanian uh, sister party and they really need uh, to change course. I have been, I think, as Commission Vice President, politically colorblind and have been just as strict with Poland, Hungary and Romania. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the big questions with this transition to a green economy is who pays? You've partially answered it by talking about yep. a carbon tax. What would you do to make sure that it's a fair transition? Because there will have to be coal mines closing. The yep. car sector will yep. have to change. Yeah, well, in my childhood and uh, my youth, I went through this period of closing coal mines and economic transformation. And it was extremely painful for the region I'm from. So I think we need to make sure that if we help countries like Poland and Slovakia to make this transition, we have an alternative and we have plans ready and we have the right level of investment and the right level of support. That's the only way you can get out of this carbon trap. So I think we need to do that also at a European level. It is extremely important. Now, how do you create the funds for that? I think through fair taxation. I was talking about a CO2 tax. We need that at the European level. And we can immediately create a system where you tax these companies and you show that you put this money directly into uh, um, uh, climate change mm -hmm. issues, into transforming our economy. Into so no fuel economy. taxes that uh, generated the gilets jaunes yeah. in France, well, for example. Well, I would say, you know, we need uh, sustainable uh, economies, sustainable ecology, but we also need sustainable social policies. And the gilets jaunes is a reaction to the fact that people believe you're putting all the onus on us, all the cost on us, but what's in it for us? Why aren't you taxing the big companies? Why is this something the citizens should pay for? The only way we can convince our citizens to make this huge transformation to a sustainable economy is if they feel they get a fair deal and they're not taxed beyond their means and that they know others who can afford it are taxed reasonably. Mm -hmm. Now, we maybe need to have one last question before we turn to a rapid-fire set mm -hmm. of questions. If you were not to finish first in the elections, who would you try and build a coalition with in order to become European Commission President? Well, my efforts will be geared towards creating a progressive majority in the European Parliament, and that is necessary. So I will do everything to bring progressive forces together all the way from Macron to Tsipras, I would say. Okay. So then let's start with our uh, 10 rapid-fire questions. Mm -hmm. uh, yes or no only answers. Oh. So if you could decide, would you push Great Britain or the United Kingdom out of the United uh, the EU? Nope. Okay. Would you support totally banning glyphosate in the EU? Yes. Should vaccination be obligatory for children? Yes. Should the European Commission president be directly elected by EU citizens? Yes. Should the Russian sanctions be removed? No. Should member states who refuse to take refugees suffer financial penalties? No. Would you promise to take 50% women in the commission? More. Wow. <laughs> uh, 
I think you've answered, but do you support a minimum wage across all of Europe? Yes. And should there be a tax on airplane fuel? You already yes. said yes. Mm -hmm. And the final question, should there be a public holiday celebrating the European Union? No. Franz Timmermans, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You were listening to Franz Timmermans, the socialist candidate for European Commission president. Next up, Margrethe Vestager. She's one of the liberal candidates for an EU top job. In this election, your Liberal Party chose seven lead candidates, mm -hmm. but there can only be one European Commission president. Do you want to be it? Well, we would like to figure out what should be the mandate. What is the work that Europeans want us to do? Mm -hmm. Because we find that to be somewhat more interesting than who is who in Brussels. Mm -hmm. And this is why we came up with the team, five women, two men, coming from all over Europe, every generation, in order to push for a debate about where should we go. Mm -hmm. There will be enough time to discuss who is who, yep. who will do what. But someone has to take the job. So Indeed. you are a candidate for the position of Commission President. Well, actually, I said to my home country, who don't really want to hear about it, that I would very much like to continue as a commissioner. Mm -hmm. Because in my field, we're in the middle of something. I think we can do a lot more to serve Europeans even better. But that would be my first choice. Okay. Let's think that you will become European Commission president. What would be the measure that you will tackle first? Well, I think the first thing would be to make sure that we have a gender balanced commission. Mm -hmm. Because that is the first and most visible thing that you can do to show Europeans that the commission mirror the way we are. And so far we are nine women in a commission of 28. And I really do think that we need the push to be much more diverse because diversity is better. It produces better decisions, it produces a better work environment, it produces better ideas. Mm -hmm. How many? 50% women in the commission team? Well, that would be a starting point for a balance. The thing is, of course, then it would be for member states to come up, preferably with both a man and a woman, for each position, so that you could make a composition of people while you have skills, talent, experience mm -hmm. coming together in the job that people would do. So you or a liberal, if they became president-elect, you would push the member states themselves, the national governments, to say, give us two names and then we will compose an equal college. Well, that would be the easy way to do things, because otherwise you'll have to negotiate with each and every member state mm -hmm. about how to find the right people. Mm -hmm. And I think in many, many other positions, this is exactly what you do. If you ask people to nominate candidates for a position, they say, well, here's uh, the man, here's the woman. Now you choose who would be the best in this position. Mm -hmm. Millions of Europeans want a more social Europe, but there are young, unemployed youth or people in, in the southern of Europe who have no job. And what would you say to a young Italian woman with a diploma who cannot find a job? How can you help her concretely? Well, first of all, I think everyone can understand her frustration in that situation. Having done everything by the book, taken an, an education, investing your talent, and yet you see that the labor market is not open for you. What has been done recently is, of course, to push for a labor market in each member state to open up. But it's not for the commission to provide her with a job. It's for us to enable member states to change in a way that allows the labor market to open up and to create the job needed. And part of that is, of course, to make sure that the things that we have to do, 
like managing climate change, fighting the worst effect, that we put that also into the task of creating more jobs. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise we will not help each other to improve her situation. Mm -hmm. So no safety net, for example, that the EU would provide in terms of minimum unemployment insurance or something like that. Well, I think it will be very difficult to get there because I think member states will to a very large degree disagree about that. Mm -hmm. What we have now, the social pillar, is a push of a political nature because we have all agreed not to have a sort of social benefit, welfare benefit as a common thing in Europe. So we try to go the political way for each member state to try to enable us to meet each other at a still higher level. But there's very, very, very long to go before we get there. Mm -hmm. Now, another big theme in the election is the rise of populism and nationalism. And Viktor Orban is a very strong case mm. in point. And his attacks on the EU, many think they're now out of control. What could you do to get Viktor Orban under control? <laughs> well, well, then at least I had to, to take upon me some of the nicknames that I'm given. <laughs> a um, dragon slayer, perhaps. But I think it is important also to hold Orban to the promises given. Because being a member of the European Union, that's a promise. Mm -hmm. It's a promise to your citizens, it's a promise to neighboring countries. I will adhere to these values, to the rule of law, which is not just something in a remote courtroom where you need independent judges. It's also being accepted to a university at mm -hmm. equal terms that you as a citizen in a country can be there on equal terms. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of things that we can do to keep him to his promise. Mm -hmm. And what price can we make him pay if he's not keeping it? Is it fines? Is it cutting EU funds to Hungary? What can the EU do to show that there is a price mm -hmm. for breaking those rules? Well, I think it's important to say, well, this is a full membership. If you want the benefits, of course, you also keep up the rest of your obligations because you yourself signed up for this. Mm -hmm. And if you cannot keep your obligations within sort of rule of law, having independent judges, freedom of press, well, of course, that comes with the consequence of the benefits that could be monetary benefits from being a member of the union, the resources that you're handed. What do you say to those who say um, we have too many migrants or too many refugees in Europe? Many of the neighboring states to, for instance, Syria, they host many, 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 many more refugees than we do in Europe. I understand completely that you don't want people to come here in an irregular manner, that you want to know who is coming, why do they come, could they be allowed to stay. So you are for legal pathways then? I think that we need one asylum system to say, well, you are a refugee and we accept that. But we also have to say, well, Unfortunately, you may have your reasons to want to travel and try to immigrate in Europe, but you cannot do that illegally. That doesn't work for us because this is not the way the European Union works. Now, another issue of serious concern to voters is climate. And we've seen students striking for a better future every Friday for months now. They've got some very big demands. And if you were to implement those demands, it means big changes, closing coal plants, big changes to the car sector. And that would mean major costs and major sacrifices. So my question to you is, who will pay for that transition to the green economy? Well, already now we invest quite a lot. I think it is very important that every investment has sort of our climate change effort as part of that perspective. The next seven-year budget, one quarter of that should be sort of directed 
into climate change issues. But when we invest, we should have this perspective that we want self-driving cars, we want them to be electrical. When you close down mines, you want to give people new jobs, new skills, new opportunities for create new kind of businesses. Because the transitioning into a sustainable economy should be an inclusive one. And that was the Macron mistake in a way, where he had the right intentions maybe with that tax, but got caught up in the backlash because some of the most vulnerable were, were suffering from it. Well, I do understand when people say, well, yes, of course, we are completely in favour of fighting climate change, but we need at the same time to be able to provide for our family. Mm-hmm. And we need to be able to have transportation to go to our job. So I think we have to make sure that when we deal with climate change, we consider that a given. It's not a choice. We have to do this. That we then see it as, as a positive challenge. This is a way to create better jobs. This is a way to create cleaner air, better environmental features as well. But it will take a lot of efforts because, as you say, the investments needed, they're gigantic. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Europe and the world. We all know that China's influence on the EU is growing. And you, as a commissioner for mm. competition, you know how challenging it is to stand up against China's um, mm. economic power. Does EU still have a chance? Oh, yes, indeed. Because we have this whole list of, of problems, but we also have a lot of knowledge. We have immense skills. Look how we have made it so far, rebuilding Europe in 70 years. That's a lot of knowledge. And... Of course, when we ask businesses to do business in Europe in a fair way, to pay their taxes, of course, we're also willing to stand up for our business outside of Europe if they are met with unfair competition. Both, of course, to reform sort of the bilateral and multilateral framework, that will take some time. So also to use our own tools, trade defense mechanism, screening if people are coming here for the right intentions, to make sure that... We stand up for businesses because we have very hard claims on them when they're here. Pay your taxes, compete in fair manners, make sure that the market serves the customer. Now, as the competition commissioner, you saw that Siemens and Alstom, Mm -hmm. who wanted to merge, that that merger would break competition rules. But then I wonder, given all of these other factors around China and geopolitics, isn't it about more than competition sometimes? As, As a candidate, do you see that there are other instruments or other things that need to be considered beyond competition? But of course, and this is why we need more than one commissioner because we need to do more than one thing. But especially when it comes to train, here is a climate change angle that's very important Mm -hmm. because we need signaling that we can afford to invest in because we need trains to be able to go cross-border and we need regularity. And we also need faster trains in order to take a train instead of always going by plane. So we need affordable prices and this is what competition can give us. Mm -hmm. But competition will not solve everything. We need, of course, strong regulation on harmful substances and harmful chemicals. We need regulation on on working hours. We need regulation on on trade as such. And this is why we have to come together. Another thing we also need is taxation. And you were very strong in demanding Apple repay taxes, 13 billion that Mm. they hadn't paid. What else can we do to make sure tech companies pay their fair share of tax? Well, we can have a common digital taxation. It's about time that corporate taxation sort of understands how a digital world is working, how you're creating value, that you can indeed be 
present to pay your taxes, even though your headquarter is very far away. That we ought to do together, because it cannot be so that most businesses pay their taxes, but some businesses, they just escape this obligation to the society where they make a very good business. Ms. Bestager, before we finish, uh, we now turn to our 10 rapid fire mm -hmm. questions. Yes or no qu uh, answers. Oh, only. but I'm a politician. Politician, <laughs> don't, don't challenge me like I'm that. Sure this is your test. You, this is you your real test. <laughs> you can do it. Um, if you could decide, would you push the UK out of the European Union? No. Should glyphosate be totally forbidden in the EU? Eventually, yes. So it's a yes. <laughs> Should vaccination be obligatory for all children? No. But you should take them. Indeed, you should take him. Mm -hmm. That's almost cheating. Uh, should the, the Commission President be elected directly by EU citizens? No. Should the Russian sanctions be removed? No. Should member states who refuse refugees suffer financial penalties? They should contribute, of course, yes, because this is a union of solidarity. Should be there a minimum wage all over Europe? No. Would you promise to take 50% women in your commission? Well, that's part of the plan. <laughs> and should there be a tax on airplane fuel? Yes, I think so. Mm -hmm. And finally, should there be a public holiday celebrating the European Union? Yeah, why not? <laughs> we have so many holidays where we celebrate that we won a war over our neighbour. So maybe we also need a, a holiday to celebrate that we actually have built something in common that's peaceful. So, yes, yeah, so yes. That's a that's yes. That's very clear. Thank you very much, Mr. Uh, Ms. Vestager. <laughs> Sorry, Ms. Vestager. It's a hair. <laughs> you get to that a lot yourself, no? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was Thank my pleasure. You. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. And now it's time to welcome back the podcast panel. Good morning, Lena Abramus. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Alva. Alva Finn, how are you doing? Good morning to you both. We're in such a good mood, I thought we would keep it going by discussing everyone's European of the Year. Jean-Claude Juncker, President Ooh. of the European Commission. Ooh. Now, why do I say that? Well, he actually was awarded the title of European of the Year, and that was at the European Business Summit this week. Heaven knows why they are trying to hold that summit in the middle of an election campaign, but that's another story. And it was at uh, an event sponsored um, and hosted by Euronews. Uh, that's the TV channel subsidized to the tune of millions of euros a year by, you guessed it, the Juncker Commission. I thought it was very interesting that he said that it was coming at an interesting time because it was post-autopsy. And I think maybe it was a hint that he would have liked something a little bit earlier in his reign in the European Commission. Hmm... Although he's not that old, I mean, he's... That's like, true, he just looks old. He, he isn't that old. He just looks old, but and, and he... <coughs> it's, he's in his early he 60s. as a, an older, very older gentleman, but he's not, he's, he's in the early 60s, and hey, listen, it's the beginning, it's like 50s now, the 60s, no? I think it was very interesting to give the self-endorsement from your news, um, I mean, for what reason? I think yeah. that whole circuit of awards is corrupt. Yeah. They go around awarding yeah. themselves. Yeah, exactly. You've got Orban, Salvini and Brexit. Yeah. I mean, how does that qualify you for European of the Precisely. Year? I'll play devil's advocate here because I think that 
One thing I think that Juncker has done is he's changed the role of the commission president. He made things much more political. And, well, he definitely, there's no doubt about it, stewarded the EU or the commission through the most difficult time in the history of the European Union. So I think a lot of people laugh at his personal life, you know, that he he does Mm -hmm. a lot of kind of gaffes. But more generally, I would have been concerned that he doesn't seem to be as active in the last two years as he was at the beginning. Oh, I think he got more, more active. active. No, yeah. I definitely don't think I mean, so. he barely travelled in the beginning. We did a big story about 18 months in that showed, you know, he had literally gone to Eastern Europe twice in 18 months, um, you know, that he spent half of his time in Luxembourg, mm. literally. I mean, I think he was not so well at that point. You know, it, it's fine. It's, it's good to have a more political commission, more untransparent commission. Uh, let's not forget uh, the appointment of Mr. Selmayr at the time of... Uh, Juncker, this is a history, we'll remember these things. And it's as if like now Europe needs a sort of tap on the shoulder of you've, you've been doing well. We have a few months uh, left in this commission, so let's all uh, embrace each other. We have done a great job. In every speech of every single commissioner, it's, it's the same. Yes, they have done a good job, but not the best job as well. Well, we did a story that came out today, Thursday, and we called it the Bratislava Report Card, where if you remember after Brexit, the leaders went to Bratislava, had this big summit saying what their future roadmap was going to be, and they made a series of commitments about what they would achieve by the time Brexit happened. And we went back and gave them scores, and they really only got 7 out of 10 on one of the eight categories. You know, if you, you can say that they announced a lot of specific things, so at a technical level they did a lot of the things that they said they were going to do, but they kind of missed a lot of the big picture I think overall so yeah you're doing more specific citizen consultations but does anyone really think Eurosceptics are back in a bottle okay yes there is low unemployment in some countries but youth unemployment is just appallingly high and there's supposed to be a youth guarantee that is supposed to make sure everyone is in education or job so there's just like a series of big picture targets that they're just not hitting basically I think that it's good to celebrate people, though, sometimes. I know that it's not very independent, right? That's the yeah. that's the, the qualm we have with it. But I do think that these jobs are difficult, you know, and yeah. sometimes they're quite... It's very obvious to be like, oh, wow, you're a president, we're going to give you an award. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, it's a quite a thankless job, I think, so in, in some ways. Mm. But yeah, I, I agree. It's 24,000 it... times a month. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's Euros, by the way. Let's move on to Brexit. Alva and I watched a documentary last night, Brexit Behind Closed Doors. It was a premiere going into the two years of Guy Verhofstadt's Brexit. He ran the Parliament Steering Group on Brexit, a beast he actually created in order to make sure the Parliament wasn't cut out of the process. And it turns out, in hindsight, that was a pretty good move, both for Europe and for Hofstadt, because that's exactly what the British Parliament didn't do. And look where they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, Lena, we'll fill you in as much as we can. But Alva, what was your gut reaction sitting through that two hours of, you know, reliving the pain of Brexit? I thought that Michelle Barnier came off very well. A lot of gravitas. Yeah, a lot of gravitas. It's just the way he explained things. And there's one very, very funny part of it that I think was my favourite. And I think it just kind of speaks to the Euro bubbleness. And obviously, I'm an inhabitant of the Euro bubble. So Michelle Barnier shows this really good slide that basically explains 
what the Brits are asking for and then what kind of a deal they would have in comparison to other places that aren't part of the European Union that have deals. And it's it's really cool. And then it goes to Giver Hofstadt's team and they're just making this terrible slide. And then they, they just kind of are saying, you know, we shouldn't really try and compete with Michel Barnier because he is... An, oh, they'll go through it. One of the team is like, oh my God, he's the dog's bollocks of PowerPoint. And then someone else chips in. He's the PowerPoint king. It was... <laughs> Yeah, so it goes to show that like some of this stuff boiled down to very much office politics, you know, and like real skills, like PowerPoint. Yeah, but no, yeah, it was it it was a very clear slide. I was thinking, God, that's a very good slide. But he comes off as being and they say this at one stage that he's a bit of a teacher. um, And I think he's teaching people Brexit. You know, he he comes off as he's teaching the UK about, you know, you can't have this cherry cherry picking and this idea that he created, which was Mm -hmm. we are not going to talk about the future relationship until we talk about these three things and he called it sequencing and I'm like that is like you gave it a scientific name it's almost like child management is what it struck me as Mm. it's like okay we're going to the child psychologist because you're having tantrums and then we're going to work together and we're going to have a tantrum training exercise and then you're going to take a big deep breath when you do one of these bad things and it was kind of like that and, you know, we might say we've been tough on Juncker, so maybe we should be a tough on Barnier as well and say it didn't work. But it's very hard to watch a documentary like that and not think the Brits were the big tactical mistake makers. Well, I mean, it doesn't give you the British side. It's really just the European side. So much of it's set in Brussels and Strasbourg. I did find that when we got about halfway through, it was like triggering me. I was thinking, God, I don't want to relive this. I've already like watched it in the news and like it just has taken up so much, I think, of our lives in in Brussels. And it just reminds me, and I think your partner said yesterday, Ryan, it just reminded him that all of these talented people have wasted two years of their life on this. Yeah, absolutely. The woman next to me was getting claustrophobia in the cinema. (laughs) She was like, get me out of here. Yeah, trauma. Well, now the, the Brits should come up with Brexit with open doors and give the other version, maybe. Well, it's oh. a bit late now. They didn't really think in advance, did they? I would love to see, because apart from that you, you wanted to see it because you're, you know, you work in EU affairs or whatever, I would love to see the UK side and mm. all of like the infighting and everything that would be going on. I just want to know what Theresa May does in Downing Street. Is there a wall where she hits her head against it or a little corner, like a soundproof booth where she goes and cries at night having to deal with all of these? All the walls would be put down by now. Yeah. And I really, I mean, I've got a lot of criticisms of Theresa May, but those comments weren't meant as a criticism of her. They were meant as a criticism of the political class around her. And the process. Yeah. She doesn't have a lot to work with, does she? But it's never happened before, so we're going to just keep unfolding things. Um, I mean, it's the first time ever, so let's hope it never happens. I'd like to be optimistic today. Well, and I think that we wanted to talk about as well. So because we were we got a kind of bird's eye view of Michelle Barnier's approach in the documentary, I thought he came off looking very well and quite regal. Um, it was almost like a campaign video. You know, yeah. it really says, pick me for it, European Commission president. <laughs> yeah. So and, and then it kind of, yeah, that is very interesting because we know that he's been positioning himself, but kind of. Yeah, a secret, but not so secret campaign. Exactly. Mm. And now with the news that Hungary's Fidesz party have said they will not vote for Manfred Weber. um, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. It's all just words at this point. But if you take them out of the equation, the EPP 
of Manfred Weber and the Socialist Party with the candidate Franz Timmermans you just heard from earlier in the podcast, they're basically level now. Mm. And they're both appallingly low. They're both basically at about 21%. Mm. In general, I think the Spitzenkandidat process is just in danger. Um, I don't think it would be a good look if the council turned around and just said, no, we're not going to endorse yeah. the person who wins the Spitzenkandidat process. I think um, the process is a problem, problem, though. Exactly. People either so should be allowed to vote for their president or, not, yeah. or have a transnational list that has something yeah. that lets people directly That's vote. True. Yeah, well, I, I definitely think I agree with the transnational lists, but that argument... That's where and there's that a is... pool of candidates that everyone in Europe selects from. So you would vote for your own members in, a, in your own country, but then there'd be something like 73 members across Europe, and it was all one big ballot across Europe, like Eurovision, basically. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a good idea, but that, unfortunately, is not going to happen this time around because we yeah. already had that conversation and the parliament rejected it. So... Um, I'm a little bit worried about what's going to happen. And if if it is that the council decide we just don't agree with the Spitzenkandidat process, I think there will be some sort of democratic crisis. And you can already hear from what the Spitzenkandidat are saying that they are kind of really positioning themselves against the council when we should yeah. all be working together. But how is it a democratic crisis? The council never agreed to the process. The candidates were never on a ballot paper. So to reject a process that wasn't really anything more than a half example of democracy. I mean, I don't... And it was introduced by John Cho. It's a crisis if 21% of the votes demand 75% of the positions. It wasn't introduced by him, though. He was was the the person person. who benefited from it. But for the first time, yeah. We have a a democratic deficit in the EU, and this was one of the options to try and and fill it. But it was the half-assed plan B when transnational lists were rejected 15, Mm -hmm. 10 years ago. So... Like, like th- these are the crumbs that we got left with. And it's true, they're crumbs. And a lot of people want it to happen. But it was no one's plan A, basically. And now we're... Can, sometimes I think being a trap of thinking we're rejecting the Holy Grail when actually it was only ever this random backstop system. Yeah, but you don't think that if the European Parliament endorsed a Spitzenkandidat and then they are rejected, that that wouldn't create That some... would be a crisis. Yeah. yeah. But I think no one's going to endorse anybody until you can prove a double majority. Like, mm-hmm. if you thought you were going to be blocked in one institution or the other, then to push that candidacy is also to create the crisis. It's, yeah, it's not true. just one person blocking it. It's if you it's are being bloody-minded about going forward when you know it's going to fail, then it's almost like mm-hmm. a self-fulfilling prophecy. I do fear that we will see that kind of division going forward. You know, we see division everywhere now, and I just... Mm-hmm. It would be better for, to me if the council and the parliament work together to pick someone who reflects what the, the electorate wanted in the European parliamentary elections. So that, to me, if that doesn't happen, it will be another example of the division that we have yeah. in, in Europe and also across the world. I tell you what would be a good um, argument in favour of it is if more than 50% of people turn out. Because mm, yeah. one thing you yeah, can yeah. argue now yeah. is the majority of people are voting for voting. no one because yeah. they don't turn out at all. Mm-hmm. And Spotify is now nudging everyone via um, a special election playlist and a message that everyone got in their app this morning yes. uh, yeah. telling you, get vocal, go out and vote. That yeah. is so cool. Yeah. yeah. So they've got a playlist that has a, a s- artist, let's say. Um, from every country across Europe. Oh my God, I'm going to listen to that. There's a plug for Spotify. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was only you're waiting for the Spotify and then otherwise you would have not voted. <laughs> well, can you imagine how many people listen to Spotify yeah. and how many people it's, don't it's vote? It's more than 70 million yeah. users Absolutely. in Europe. Yeah. So it's a, that's a big message. Good more job. than any other parties are reaching at the moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, we're probably reaching the limits of your patience. So we're going to wrap it up here. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Lena, Alva, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. Ryan. And thank you to all of you for being part of our community. If you haven't registered to receive the podcast by email already, you can go to politico.eu forward slash registration and it will pop up in your inbox every week with no effort. And as always, thank you to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin for making this episode possible. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.